Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook. If you would like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. Thanks for listening and enjoy. Um, we're very happy to have David Ulin here. Um, if you don't know who he is, you've been living in a cave. <laughs> we're so happy that he's here, ladies and gentlemen. Please welcome David Ulin. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you. I, um, I appreciate you guys coming out. I understand there is something called the World Series happening tonight, but um, in my universe, the World Series was canceled when the Yankees lost game six. <laughs> <laughs> I like to warm up the crowd beforehand. <laughs> anyway, um, so this is sort of the first official reading from this book, The Lost Art of Reading, which grew out of an essay I wrote for the LA Times, where I used to be book editor and I'm now book critic, um, about how I was having difficulty reading in an over-networked culture. And after I published that essay, um, the publisher of Sasquatch Books, this the press that put this book out, said to me, would you like to write a book about how you can no longer read books? <clears throat> so I thought that would be a useful thing, but it's a very short book. Um, 152, 151 pages with not a lot of words on the page. And the basic structure of the book, the question that I had to sort of ask was how to turn this tiny essay into a book. And the basic structure of the book became a or grew out of a discussion that I was having with my son, Noah, who was 15 at the time, now 16, about The Great Gatsby, which he had been assigned to read in a ninth grade humanities class and was having a lot of difficulty reading because of the sort of academic protocol of the reading, annotation um, and uh, other sort of critical apparatuses or apparati or whatever they are. Um, so I use that as a kind of narrative through line through the book and then talk about other things. And because the other things mostly sort of nerdy discussions of books I like and why don't really go over well in a public setting. I'm going to read <clears throat> one of the narrative sections which has to do with Noah and I and the Great Gatsby. And um, this should take about 20 minutes. I'll just warn you in advance because I know sometimes readings can be hard to sit through. Um, and <laughs> I make a really like no more than 20 minute rule. I'll try and read well. I haven't had that much to drink. And, um, and afterwards, if you want, you can ask questions. You don't have to. You can just simply buy the book, which is what we're all here for. Um, I'll be happy to sign it and write a pleasant personal note in your book if you like. Um, and let's we as well get down to business. So. I decided I would help Noah with the great Gatsby. He didn't ask, not exactly, but neither did he say no. First I showed him some of my annotations, a galley of a novel I was reviewing, the marked up copy of a text I was preparing to teach. He stood just inside the door of my home office, thumbing through the pages, smiling closely. You'd fail if you were in my class, he said. <laughs> Noah was right. I'm a minimalist when it comes to marginalia, or maybe it's just that I know what works for me. Either way, I've developed my own shorthand for note-taking, a system of slashes and asterisks and underlinings that take the place of language, that serve more as memory triggers, cite this, than as the component parts of any intellectual or critical frame. It's not that I mind highlighting passages that move me. In fact, I've grown so used to reading with a pen in my hand that I miss it with an almost physical ache when I read for pleasure, as if in the act of annotation I can't help but take a deeper dive. And yet, like Noah, I don't want to be distracted, don't want to be pulled out of the flow. 
The sample annotations that he showed me made a, a series of page spreads covered with small, precise loops of writing made my head hurt, not so much because of the denseness of the commentary as because of how it cluttered up the page. Too many notes can, uh, too many notes can get overwhelming, interposing the reader's sensibility on top of the writer's until the latter is obscured. To me, this is antithetical to the nature of the process, which is, or should be, porous, an interweaving rather than a dissemination, a blending, not an imposition of sensibilities. I didn't say all this to Noah. Instead, I suggested... <laughs> I didn't want to lose him from the outset. Uh, instead, I suggested a way to game the system by using a version of my shorthand as he was reading and then returning to fill out his comments afterwards. I also offered to reread to re the novel with him so we could discuss it as he worked. He gave me a look, eyes skeptical, but again, he didn't turn me down. How far are you into it, I asked. And when he said his class had finished the first six chapters, I went to the shelves and took down my old Scribner paperback, the same copy I had read in high school, with that flapper face on the cover outlined in the night above the gleaming chaos of electric lights, her sad eyes recalling the billboard of Dr. T.J. Eckelberg, who watches over the tumult of the novel with a gaze as disconnected and impassive as that of God. I paged through the book to see what I was looking at. 118 pages, not a problem. I could do that in a couple of hours. It was a Sunday afternoon in March, and the rest of the day extended before me like a question mark. I talked to Noah for another moment before he went off to his room. From behind the closed door, I could hear music, Green Day, the soundtrack to Rent, and the sound of laughter as he eye-chatted with a friend. I took the Great Gatsby into the living room and stretched out on the couch. In my younger and more vulnerable days, the novel opens, my father gave me some advice that I've been turning over in my mind ever since. Whenever you feel like criticizing anyone, he told me, just remember that all the people in this world haven't had the same advantages that you've had. There it was, right from the beginning, the classic Fitzgerald preoccupation with privilege and class. And then this. He didn't say any more, but we've always been unusually communicative in a reserved way, and I understood that he meant a great deal more than that unusually communicative in a reserved way. Here we had the essence of the father-son dynamic evoked in less than a sentence. Six particularly well-chosen words. I felt a flash of recognition, of connection, felt myself slip between, beneath the surface of the language, felt the book rise up as if to swallow me. This was what I'd been missing. That full-bore immersion, this is what reading had to offer, that balance of first and second sight, of knowing and unknowing, of finding yourself in someone else. My initial response was one of relief, and not just because I'd slid into the book so easily. It had been decades since I'd read The Great Gatsby, and I hadn't known for sure how it would be. Rereading can be a tricky process in which, for better or worse, you're brought face to face with both the present and the past. It's different than reading, more layered, more nuanced, with implications about how we've changed. In her 2005 book, Rereadings, Anne Fadiman traces the distinction between reading and rereading. Quote, the former had more velocity, the latter had more depth. The former shut out the world in order to focus on the story, the latter dragged in the world in order to assess the story. The former was more fun, the latter was more cynical. But what was remarkable about the latter was that it contained the former, even while, as with the upper half of a set of bifocals, I saw the book through the complicating lens of adulthood. I also saw it through the memory of the first time I'd read it. That was true. Although those memories sometimes turned out to be deceptive, I had lost books by rereading them. Flannery O'Connor's Wise Blood, for instance, which I had loved in college, but not so much later, when I began to see it as a young writer's pastiche, less about life as it really is than a naive's projection of how life might be. That was my worry with The Great Gatsby, which Fitzgerald wrote in his late 20s. The book was published when he was 29. 
<laughs> exactly. <clears throat> he deserved what he got. Um, how, much, how much could he have known, especially about his own vulnerability and failings, about the way the world can take everything from us, our pride, our aspirations, our very heart? This is why I admired his later work, the crack-up, the Pat Hobby stories, the love of the last tycoon, because flawed as it was, it revealed a Fitzgerald beyond the stereotype, a damaged man, older and more weighted. I remember riding in a taxi one afternoon between, be, between very tall buildings under a mauve and rosy sky, he wrote in 1932, looking back at 1920, when this side of paradise had made him the toast of Manhattan. I began to bawl because I had everything I wanted and knew I would never be so happy again. Here we see the blending of the personal and universal, the way Fitzgerald's specific experience, riding in a taxi one afternoon between very tall buildings under a mauve and rosy sky, bleeds into a broader human understanding of loss. The longing is almost palpable, the sense that joy is fleeting, that even the most profound satisfactions, I had everything I wanted, must fade beneath the press of time. Could the younger Fitzgerald have recognized this? The great Gatsby shows he did. When Nick leaves Gatsby's house for the first time after a manic weekend party, he glimpses a similar sort of dissipation, the loneliness that comes encoded in the most frantic celebrations, the silence at the center of the world. I glanced back once, he tells us. A wafer of a moon was shining over Gatsby's house, making the night fine as before, and surviving the laughter and the sound of his still glowing garden. A sudden emptiness seemed to flow now from the windows and the great doors, endowing with complete isolation the figure of the host, who stood on the porch, his hand up in a formal gesture of farewell. It's impossible to read these lines without thinking in some way of Fitzgerald himself. Mostly, we authors must repeat ourselves. That's the truth, he acknowledged in a 1933 essay called 100 False Starts, published in the Saturday Evening Post. We have two or three great moving experiences in our lives, experiences so great and moving that it doesn't seem at the time that anyone else has been so caught up and pounded and dazzled and astonished and beaten and broken and rescued and illuminated and rewarded and humbled in just that way ever before. That's a great line. True of all my most iconic writers, Didion and Kerouac, Conroy and Trochee, and of course poor Malcolm Lowry sitting on his beach in British Columbia trying to write his way out of alcoholism and defeat. But it may be truest of Fitzgerald, who has long been misread as a social chronicler, tagged by, like Kerouac with the awful burden of being labeled the voice of his generation, until the particulars of his fascination, those two or three great moving experiences, are subsumed by another kind of myth. I kept thinking about this as I read the first six chapters of The Great Gatsby, kept thinking about the architectures we erect over certain books and authors until their essence is obscured. This, I would suggest, is another problem, the way we talk around rather than about the books we read, the way we tend to focus on everything except the thing itself. And yet, as that long Sunday afternoon passed like liquid honey, I began to drift. Partly it was the silence as amorphous as time passing. Partly it was the light, slow and diffuse. Partly it was exhaustion, which kept rising up to infiltrate the lulling heartbeat of the words. But most of all, I must admit, it was distraction, an inability to hold at bay the insistence of the world. I read for a bit, then clicked on the television, checked the news from spring training, watched some forgotten film. I called Ray, who was out with our daughter, Sophie. I took the dog for a walk. I flipped ahead to see how many pages were in each chapter, as if to calibrate my experience. <laughs> this is something I have always done, a way to position myself in a book, but such knowledge can be a two-way street. And on this Sunday, it began to work against me, occasioning not anticipation, but instead a kind of dread. In the end, I forced myself to stick with the reading if for no other reason than I owed it to my son. I wanted to set an example to be a role model, but also to come to his rescue, to swim out into the shifting currents of the novel and carry him home. 
I kept thinking about a trip we'd taken to Hawaii a few years earlier for a family vacation. Ray, Noah, and I decided to go scuba diving off a boat that trolled the reefs not far from shore. We drove up in our shorts and sunscreen, met the other tourists, chatted briefly about how little we knew. I'd gone on a couple of dives as a teenager in the gentle waters of the Caribbean. I had loved the experience of flying beneath the surface of the ocean, dipping and rising with a slight kick of my flippers, submerging, rolling, free of gravity, passing above schools of colored fish as if I were one. The water had been so warm I'd worn a bathing suit and t-shirt. It was, as I recalled, like immersing in a giant tub. The first inner indication that this was going to be different came when the dive instructor laid several wetsuits across the aft deck and told us each to find one that fit. The second came as soon as we emerged from the chute of the harbor and turned into the Pacific. Immediately we found ourselves buffeted by waves, pitched in sweeping rolls of water, although we were no more than 100 yards off the coast. Ray was the first to succumb. Before she could even get, sorry, before she could even get into the wetsuit, her face grew pale, her skin slickened, and then she was throwing up over the rail. <laughs> She spent the rest of the morning lying on one of the benches that lined the mid-deck, face tucked into the crook of an elbow, eyes shut tightly against the rocking of the boat. Noah and I fared better initially at, east, at least. Seasickness-wise, David Foster Wallace writes in his essay, A Supposedly Fun Thing I'll Never Do Again, it turns out that, the he that heavy seas are sort of like battle. There's no way to know ahead of time how you'll react. We got our wetsuits on, although the chop made balance difficult and I could feel my stomach lurch. Off the stern, the ocean looked inviting, not just because it was cool and green, but also because the dive instructor kept telling us, once in the water, we would be less susceptible to the way it moved. We went in as a group, and within a, a second, I knew I was in trouble. The water was rough, up and down, up and down, a constant lapping. I put the rebreather in my mouth and slipped below the surface, but it was not much better underneath. I could feel the currents, their relentless pulling, could feel the tug of the mask on my face. I began to breathe quickly as if at the edges of panic. Instinctively, I broke for the reassurance of the air. The satisfaction was fleeting. Since as soon as I came up, I started bouncing. Water got in my nose and mouth. The boat was only a dozen feet away, an easy swim, but there was no comfort in that realization. Besides, my son was in the water, 20 or, feet down, 20 or so feet down with the rest of the divers, and I had to keep an eye on him. So I went back down into the water, back below the surface again. I angled towards the others, who were in a cluster near a guide wire, some of the more adventurous already branching off of the jagged architecture of a nearby reef. Noah was easy to find. He was with the instructor, practicing practicing navigation, the two of them swimming together nearly in mirror image like an underwater pod to do. I turned away, submerged a bit, swam off a little on my own. I was still breathing fast, but the panic had receded, leaving in its place a more general anxiety. This wasn't diving as I remembered it. This wasn't easy. This was a fight. The currents kept pushing me, first towards the shore and then away. It was requiring all my stamina to stay in the general area of the boat. All of, the sudden I had a real, all of a sudden I had a realization. I was, in the most literal sense imaginable, in over my head. Forty-six years old, out of shape, not the strongest swimmer, in waters more assertive than I had ever known. This is how people die, I remember thinking. <laughs> and then I looked over to where... <laughs> <laughs> and then I looked over to where Noah was still drifting and saw that something had gone wrong. I watched him point to the surface, watched the instructor shake his head no, then watched a cloud of something, it looked like fish food, although I later understood that it was vomit, explode from Noah's mouthpiece as his body went slack. 
I turned and swam to them, moving as fast as the current would allow. I could feel my body start to rush with adrenaline, not a flood, but a kind of steady growing tension, steeped not in panic, but in fear. As I pushed through the tide, the instructor took my son's arm and began to lead him to the surface. I caught up with them just in time to watch Noah give a little shudder, as if he were coming awake. Behind his face mask, his eyes fluttered. I could see his chest move as the instructor held the mouthpiece to his lips. Get him up, get him up, I thought, taking Noah's other arm and rising with them. And then we broke through. The air was a revelation, the sky blue and unblinkered, the ocean bobbing beneath us, our bodies bouncing up and down like corks. I spit out my rebreather, took a long breath as I maneuvered behind Noah, let him recline against my chest. I wrapped an arm around his upper body to keep his head above the waves. The instructor pointed towards the boat, which was still close, although we had drifted, maybe 10, maybe 15 yards. Then he asked if I would be all right without him, and when I nodded, he slipped back underneath the water and was gone. And I know that there were other instructors watching. And I know that the crew of the boat was there to help. When I got Noah to the stern, only a minute or two after we had broken the surface, I was met by three men, all reaching out to grab his arms and legs to help me raise him to the deck. 20 minutes later, sitting on the deck myself, sipping from a bottle of water, and looking at my wife and son, both now supine on those benches, sleeping off the experience as if it were a particularly nasty drunk, <clears throat> I could already see the contours of the story, could already sense the narrative it would become. But before it became a story, during that minute or two in the water, what I recollect most sharply is the sense that things could go either way. 10 or 15 yards feels like a marathon when you're swimming against the current with another body in your arms. And it was in the last few feet as we came up along the port side of the boat and had to turn to reach the diving platform that I became truly terrified. In the movie Jaws, which I saw so many times as a 13-year-old that I can still quote large chunks of it verbatim, Robert Shaw, as Quint, recounts the saga of the USS Indianapolis torpedoed in the Pacific on July 30, 1945, shortly after delivering components of the Hiroshima bomb. Noon the fifth day, Mr. Hooper, he tells Richard Dreyfuss, a Lockheed Ventura saw us. He swung in low and he saw us. He's a young pilot, a lot younger than Mr. Hooper. Anyway, he saw us and come in low. And three hours later, a big fat PBY comes down and starts to pick us up. You know, that was the time I was most frightened, waiting for my turn. I'll never put on a life jacket again. <laughs> Shaw's monologue gets it exactly right, the way I felt in the water also. My sense that if tragedy was coming, it would be in those final seconds, that this was where eternity might bear its teeth. Although that didn't happen. In some odd fashion, the feeling carried over even after we got back to land. Two years later, listening as Noah complained about The Great Gatsby, I had a mental image of him floundering in the linguistic ocean of the novel, much as he had floundered in the Pacific that diving day. I had the inspiration that I could come retrieve him, that together we could make it back to the boat. Noah, of course, had other ideas. <laughs> On Monday morning, while driving him to the school bus, I tried to talk about Fitzgerald, but he rebuffed me in the, blunted ter in the bluntest terms. I got it covered, he said, when I asked about his annotations. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. And when I pushed a little, bringing up the eyes of Dr. T.J. Eckelberg, he rolled his own eyes at me and shifted to face the window. You know, I told him, I spent the whole afternoon yesterday reading to help you. Even as I was speaking, we both recognized the emptiness of the guilt. <laughs> Noah turned back towards me slowly, his gaze dark and indistinct. Don't worry about it, I almost said, forget it, but it was too late. If the, if the art of parenting is, as I often think, the art of keeping your mouth shut, I had, I had blown it. I had said too much. And so 
I waited for Noah to deliver my comeuppance in the way that only a 15-year-old can. When it came, it was surprisingly gentle. I didn't ask you to help me, Noah said. Thank you. <laughs> So if anyone has any questions, I'm happy to answer them. If anyone, no one has any questions, I'm happy to not answer them. Have you been diving since? Never. Never. My kid won't even go in the water. <laughs> A wise choice. Exactly how I felt after I saw Jaws. <laughs> Does your um, sort of Jaws affect the fact that you won't go in the water? I mean, do you think about Jaws a lot when you go <laughs> I do, like I go diving so often. No, I in the in the three times I've ever gone diving in my life, I've never thought about Jaws. For a while, like the summer Jaws came out because I used to spend summers or do spend summers in Cape Cod, where Jaws was filmed in Martha's Vineyard. I did not. Um, I thought about it a lot when I was 13 and 14, but I don't really like salt water anyway. Um, I'm not a beach person. A friend of mine told me when I moved here, and I said I wasn't a beach person. That when the revolution came, I would be the first one executed for not for not having taken advantage of living near the beach for so long. So it never really affected me that much. What, what was Noah's ultimate impression of Gatsby? Did it resonate much better? It's hard to say. I mean, I think he thought the writing in the end was beautiful. Everyone here has read Gatsby. I'm not going to ruin the plot, right? <laughs> He did, he did say, he did say, murder, suicide, cool, how come you didn't tell me? <laughs> so I think he sort of, it resonated, but I think it was, you know, it's that way, I, I think there is a really interesting question about how we deal with reluctant readers, which are really adolescents and a lot, in a lot of cases, adolescent boys, and how we sort of, the kind of structures that we erect around reading, which I think just put them at a distance in some way. Um, and I would, uh, you know, that's why I said to him, just read the book, don't worry about it, just read the book, and then we can, you can figure out how to fulfill the assignment um, in another way. It's, it's one thing for a sophisticated reader to be able to, to be asked to do that, but I think there, we still teach reading in a, in a sort of mid-20th century way, and we're dealing with kids who are, you know, whatever, the mid-20th century to them is ancient history, so. I have mega hope for reading in this age of Kindle, and I think actually that, um, and the end of the book talks about this, I, I dislike the Kindle um, because I don't like the interface. I dislike Amazon because I think they're the devil, um, but, <laughs> but I am happy that they are selling my book. <laughs> Um, I'm, I'm reading the Keith Richards autobiography right now, and there's a line where he talks about Hugh Hefner, who apparently put them up at the Playboy Mansion in 1972 because there were no, no hotel in Chicago would let the Stones stay there. And Keith Richards says, we've dealt with all manner of pimps in our career, big and small, and Hefner was the, big, was the biggest. So I think of Amazon in those terms, I suppose. But, um, but I do think that... Um, what e-readers are doing, which I think is f a fundamentally fascinating shift, is, is teaching people or already have taught people to read long form on screen. And the great knock on technology or on the way that technology and reading interacted for many years was that people wouldn't read long form writing on screen. Everything on the web had to be short. No one was going to jump down below the fold, as it were, right? No one was going <coughs> to scroll down to the bottom of the screen. They were going to click off. But e-readers, we already know now, people are reading long form on screen. They're reading full length books long books. I was just talking to someone who was reading Anna Karenina on a, on a Kindle, so seriously long books.
politics. And I think that um, my general attitude is any place you read, I'm happy. Whatever you, wherever and however you read, I'm happy. I don't really think that reading is at risk in the way that people seem to talk about. I think we live in a culture with a lot of other distractions and a lot of other entertainments. But, um, I, you know, I remember in high school, I didn't know that many serious readers, you know, then, 30-some years ago. I was the kid in my room with a big stack of books. My, most of my friends were not. And I don't know, I think the numbers and the percentages have shifted, obviously, but serious reading has always been a kind of minority pursuit. It's hard. And, um, you know, it requires a real commitment. And I don't, I, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't, lament for its future. In fact, I think that uh, technology, and I include the book as one of the best and most durable forms of technology, um, the intersection of technology and literature, there are just more possible ways for people to get involved, and that's always a good thing. We have one question in the back. The blogger from the Los Angeles Times. <laughs> I think addressing the question made me sort of was a cathartic thing in some way. I found it easier to read because I actually had to do something about it. So like I, you know, I don't read blogs anymore or very, very rare. I mean, I, I do. I read, I read jacket copy. Sorry. Sorry. Um, I knew I was going to walk into it. I don't, I, I, I sort of am very selective about how and what I read and I make time to read. Also, Frankly, just in terms of sheer survival skills, since I became the book critic, you know, I'm reading like two or three books a week. So if I don't read, I don't eat. So um, there's a, but I, I think that the, the essay to some extent and then writing this book were cathartic in the sense that they made me really think about the issue of distraction and the issue of concentration. And the other thing I would say is, and I talk about this in the book, I do think in some ways this is political because we live in a culture that wants us to be distracted for a variety of reasons, that wants us to think that, you know, um, what people wear is important, that wants us to think that Christine O'Donnell not knowing that their separation of church and state is in the Constitution is important. It's not important. She's losing by 21 points. She's not important. But we'd rather focus on that because it's sort of titillating in some way, and we can either laugh at it if we're on one side, or we can um, say we can sort of judge the the naysayers if we're on the other side, rather than discuss real issues and think and try and find some kind of common ground where we can disagree civilly, where we can talk about issues, um, where we can talk about intellectual life and emotional life, where we can try and connect one to the other, which to me is um, the fundamental point of, of writing, of art, of anything, to reach out of the lonely, fragile vessel to someone else's lonely, fragile vessel and forge some kind of temporary communion. Um, we, we, we need to be able to do that. And I think that in that sense, um, really thinking about that made me, I've, I've thought about that in an abstract way for a long time, but writing the book made me think about that in a much more concrete kind of way. So, um, writing the book, how does your focus for long-form writing mirror or not your focus for long-sustained reading? You mean in terms of writing long-form writing? Do you get as distracted? No, I immerse in long-form. Long-form writing is great. You know, there's no page limits and you can say whatever you need to say and nobody's going to cut eight inches out of your story or 16 lines because it doesn't fit on, um, on deadlines. So um, I think in a lot of ways for a writer, long-form writing is the, is the saving grace, right? You can say what you need to say. You can say it in the form you need to say it. You can say it at the length you need to say it. This was a really f sort of... 
I hesitate to say that any piece of writing <coughs> is fun. Um, I was telling Todd before the reading that at one point Noah years ago said to me, he was writing an essay and he said, um, I said, just write it. And he said, that's easy for you to say because you love writing. And I said to him, Noah, you've been living with me for your whole life. What evidence have you ever had that I love writing? <laughs> Um, but I do think there's something really sort of um, fulfilling, let's say, that's a weak word, but it's the best one I have at the moment, um, about being able to follow um, a, a thought line or have an argument with yourself over an extended piece of time. And I, it's not even necessarily in terms of the length, it's really the time. This book I wrote very fast for me, because I'm not a fast writer, and it, and it was a short book, but I wrote it in about three months. But the idea of actually having that daily argument or that daily conversation with myself every day for three months about a subject that was meaningful to me and that what I was having trouble with and unresolved about was a really incredible kind of gift in a certain way. And I think that that's the thing that long-form writing from a writer's point of view offers. I have no idea whether, I hope that that's something that it offers from a reader point of view. I have no control over that, obviously, but from a writer's point of view, there's something really profound and wonderful about that, which is another reason I'm in favor of the preservation of long-form writing. So I and all of the rest of you I know in this room who do long-form writing can continue to be fulfilled. Even the idea of privacy or private life, inner life, is you know is on the ropes. And what do you think of the relationship between reading and private life, inner life? Well, I think reading, particularly, let's say, reading of literature, which by which you know, novels, memoirs, literary nonfiction, poetry, is is all about in some way private life because there's an immense intimacy in reading. Reading. Serious reading is all about intimacy, I think. It's about a one-to-one -one interaction between a writer and a reader. I think it's a collaborative process. So I think that it becomes a matter of, of private life. And it is the thing you do. Uh, in the book, I quote E.L. Doctorow, who says, writing in silence, reading in silence, which is how he describes the kind of peculiar intimacy of reading. It's a, it's a person in a room by themselves writing and a person in a room by themselves reading what that person in the room by themselves has written. And there's a really interesting intimacy that comes out of that kind of, that solitude. The other thing I think it offers, not that reading has to be instructive, and I don't think reading, I think in some ways that's part of the problem with the way it's taught is that it always has to be instructive. But in the interest of its instructive abilities, it's about empathy. And I think, um, you know, Jane Smiley talks a lot about how if our readers read more novels, and I would extend that to say read more literature, we would be less likely to get into unfortunate foreign adventures because they would be able to conceptualize some sense of the other. But because they don't, they can't. I was telling someone, I can't remember who, I was telling someone that over the weekend, and he said, no, it's not that our readers, that our leaders should read more novels, it's that we should elect more readers who read, we should elect more readers as leaders. <laughs> Although, we elected a reader as leader, and we've, you know, he's been less than spectacular, I think we could say. But, um, anyway, I think that it's, to me, it's about intimacy, and it's also about em empathy. And in some ways, intimacy and empathy are the cornerstone of sort of serious adult private life, I think. So, I Do you think you would have come to the same epiphany about your intention if it wasn't also your job to read? You know, I don't know. That's a good question. I don't think it would have... 
I don't know that I would have been as reluctant to write the original piece, which I was reluctant to write. It was actually due to the intercession of Orly Lowe, my editor, not here tonight, unfortunately, but really the just, you know, the spectacular editor, the secret the secret weapon um, that I, I, she kept pushing me to write it because I kept talking about it and she kept pushing me to write it. Um, I think I might have just because I was always, a re I read, I'm al I've always been a reader anyway. So I think if I wasn't writing about books, I would still be reading a lot of books and I th or I would be wanting to read a lot of books. I'd be coveting a lot of books. <laughs> and I think that um, I would have been aware of sort of that tension, but maybe it wouldn't have been as um, catalyzed. Are your books that you read always assigned to you these days, or do you ever a lot of stuff I read. A lot of stuff I read. I'm picking my myself. Um, some stuff's assigned, but I'm picking largely my own stuff, and I'm always looking for stuff that I'm reading in in the very sort of minimal time I have to read not for work. So um, probably about eighty percent of the stuff I read is stuff that I'm choosing. That was. Yeah, and so that was an interesting part of this dilemma too, because I was—it wasn't that I was sort of being assigned. It wasn't like school assignments. It was, you know, books that I really wanted to read, stacks of books that I wanted to read that I was just too overwhelmed to get at. He has not read the book, but he has pace posted on Facebook about himself being the star of the book. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm glad he's not here this evening because I can embarrass him with impunity because he'd be really, really pissed right now. <laughs> any, other, any other questions? Uh, here's a funny one for you. For you um, I read a statistic in the introduction of a book by Anthony Robbins. Uh, he was told by consultants, he said, uh, on a book he was working on, he suggested to break it into two books, because they said that the studies show that 90% of the people who buy a book do not get past the first chapter, not read past the first chapter. Uh, really sounds doubtful to me. Do you guys believe that at all? Have you heard any statistics about I haven't heard those statistics. I don't know if you guys if you guys have. Buy a book, actually read it. I don't know. I I would cons frankly I, now this is the book critic in me. I would consider it a failure of the author if you if you uh, and and you, this may well be my failure if you can't um, if if you bail out on a book early. I it, part of the it's, I think reading and writing is a com is is a conversation, and I don't think it's a spoon feeding, but I do think that the author. There is an obligation on the part of the author to, to sort of make it interesting, um, or else why are we spending our time doing this? So I think that in some ways, to make a very broad general statement that I'm sure I will regret, I would say that that I, I would hold the author responsible for that more than the reader in some in some ways, assuming that they know what they're getting. Because different books, we read different books for different reasons. Some books are more difficult than others. Some books are not. But I don't. I, I, but I don't know. Those books I could very easily see not getting past more than the first chapter, <coughs> or even the first page. <laughs> Any? Can I say the one plus for Kindle is you get the first chapter free, so you don't have to make a commitment up front. <laughs> There's no Kindle version of this book <coughs> yet. <coughs> well, thank you guys all for coming. I will be happy to sign books if there are books to be signed. And um, thank you very much.
You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.